never mentions the word addiction in certain company. Yes, she tell you she's an orphan after you meet her family. Dr. Bill, your radio MD, that's a little bit of Kameet, Virginia. She was a drug addict, a goth kind of personality that one of the Counting Crow band members met in Atlanta years ago and wrote a song about her. And uh, it's a sad situation, obviously, because she's very depressed and she paints her face black and pulls down the shades and shoots up heroin. And uh, she might have ended up overdosing. I don't know. I, I don't remember the whole story, but... The whole controversy and concern over overdoses, uh, the national obsession that we have brought to the fore, and and in part because of the president and his brother who had problems with drugs, is even topic at the lunch table for the doctors and the nurses and the nurse practitioners. And uh, I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about that because it's important to me that we address this in a way that is sane, rational, and uh, informative. Now, the national drug overdose deaths have gone up considerably since 1999 to 2017, the majority being synthetic narcotics, street drugs like heroin and cocaine. Uh, but there's been a, a bump up in the, uh, in the overdose of benzodiazepines and uh, other prescription drugs that doctors are responsible for writing, at least you would think. Now, I'm sure some of these make it onto the street and they become illegal um, goods that are traded and sold. The number of deaths from synthetic narcotics, and I'll go into what those are in a minute, have gone from oh, four or 5,000 a year to 30,000 plus a year. And we heard recently that there's 50, 60, 70,000 deaths from drug overdoses annually in the United States now, which is considerably higher than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Well, the the bad actor here, the drug that is causing a lot of the, the problems within the uh, drug abuse community and responsible for these narcotic overdose deaths is fentanyl. Fentanyl is a synthetic narcotic. Now, there are narcotics that are alkaloids of opium, like morphine and codeine, and then there are semi-synthetics where you take codeine and you do a few things to it to make it more potent, and that's oxycodone and hydrocodone. And then there's purely synthetic narcotics like uh, methadone and fentanyl. And these drugs are made in a chemistry lab or in a, a pharmaceutical plant, and they're made for the purpose of providing all the benefits of the original narcotics, the narcotics that we derived from opium, from the poppy seed, but in a form that you would think would be more controllable because it's uh, uh, much more precise in its manufacture and in its uh, composition, and we know exactly how potent these things are. Now, we, we 
measure the potency of a narcotic based on morphine. And we go up or down from morphine as the zero baseline, the standard for the pain killing effects and the sedating effects of the narcotics. And so codeine is less than um, one fifth of the strength of equivalent amount of morphine, whereas fentanyl, the equivalent amount of fentanyl is 100 times stronger than morphine. And remember, these are drugs that will stop your heart, stop you from breathing, uh, shut down your brain. So if you get too much of it, then you're going to die if you don't have someone there to give you an antidote or to support you and your respiration and your heartbeat and all those things that are necessary until you wake up or the drug uh, wears off. So why has this become such a problem? <clears throat> well, the problem is that there's been a tremendous influx of illegal drugs into the country, primarily being produced in China in uh, pharmaceutical plants that are legitimate there, uh, but they will sell to anybody around the world. And one of the guys at the lunch table years ago said that he actually called a pharmaceutical company in China and said, I want to order some fentanyl. And they said, okay, how much do you want? And he started the conversation and he said, well, now how do I get it through customs? And they said, oh, don't worry about that. They don't even check. Well, we're checking now. And so what has happened is this has forced the fentanyl to go through Mexico and across the border, along with illegal immigrants and mules and coyotes and the whole drug business and all that we're hearing about in the news. And it has hit the streets. And how does it get into the drugs that the, uh, the kids and the junkies are doing? Well, uh, the people that are wholesaling this are cutting their heroin and their other injectable drugs like cocaine with the fentanyl. So they mix it right in. It makes it more potent <clears throat> and it's cheaper than the heroin. It's cheaper than the cocaine. People get a kick out of it. They like it. They come back and they want to buy more. But what happens is these are not <clears throat> registered pharmacists or doctors or chemists. These are just people who are selling drugs and they don't know how much they're mixing in. And that mix <clears throat> is becoming a lethal dosage for a lot of people. Well, how do we combat this? Well, obviously, we have to get control of the border. I mean, that, that's number one. Number two, uh, we have to educate especially our teenagers and young adults on the, uh, the potential death that can arise from using this, that, that there's a potential for dying from using these on off the street drugs and uh, ending up with uh, an arm full of fentanyl, which then gets into your system and, and stops your brain, stops your breathing. And uh, that's not going to be an easy thing. One of the problems is that the kids uh, aren't subject to peer pressure. And you and I know, because we were all teenagers once, that there are kids who are strong and they're leaders. And if they're doing the right thing, they're leading the band or they're leading the football team or they're leading the class as a president or they're in some way doing something positive and productive within society as a leader. And there are other people who are leaders who are not such nice people that they have turned to the dark side, so to speak. And we see that even in our politics. 
Uh, we see it in, in governments. We see it in uh, despotic leaders. And there are people who are very good at, at leading other people, especially susceptible, vulnerable teenagers who want to fit into the crowd. They don't want to uh, appear not to be part of the gang. And, and so they want to try what everybody else is doing. And uh, they try uh, an injectable narcotic that they think is uh, no big deal. And it ends up having a lethal dose of fentanyl in it. And, and then they die. And Joe and I were talking about this before the show. And one of his high school friends lost a 16-year-old exactly this way. So this is a real problem. And it's affecting everybody in the community directly or indirectly. It's costing money because we have to uh, treat these folks. We're losing the productivity of 40 to 50,000 people a year. And we need to stop it. <clears throat> well, how do we stop it? Well, I, I, I understand that people are upset with Purdue and Johnson & Johnson, the makers of the oxycodone and the uh, Percocets that uh, have been a mainstay of by-mouth oral heavy-duty painkillers for people who are post-op or have had uh, a major injury or have chronic pain like low back or have rheumatoid arthritis and have chronic joint pain. And I understand that People want to reach out and blame somebody. Of course, the attorneys, they want to make money. And so they seize on this vulnerable population that wants to blame somebody for their problem. And they go after companies like Purdue, who had 10% of the market for Percocet sales. And uh, then the, the push, too, is to say, well, you know, they lied to the doctors. And so the doctors are indirectly involved. No, we're not. Come on. I mean, there are bad doctors who prescribed narcotics for profit, and a lot of them have gone to jail, and some of them have gotten away, but most of them are caught and locked up. And we've had some in our community, community here in the Tampa Bay area, and I've even had problems within my own practice with a physician who was overprescribing. And when he left, uh, two of my staff members who quit had stolen his prescription pad, and they ended up writing false prescriptions and selling 60 to 70, 80,000 Percocet over a two-year period. That's a lot of money. And how do I know that? Because the sheriff's department over in Hillsborough County, which is the county that Tampa is in, gave me a call to investigate further and to let me know about the, the fate of my former employee. And uh, I, I mean, I'm I was not surprised, but, uh, you know, I was upset. I did not like hearing that, and, and I, was, I was very sorry that my ex-employee had fallen into this, uh, this, this hardship and had felt the need to try to make money illegally by selling drugs and, and forging prescriptions. So it does happen within our community. There's no doubt about it, and it, it, it can touch even somebody like me indirectly. But let's be honest. The overwhelming majority of physicians understand and know that narcotics are addictive. And we get pushed this way and we get pushed that. And societal norms and expectations change from time to time. Around 2000, there was a big push for us to prescribe more painkillers, more narcotics. And we even had these little, these little uh, uh, 
flyers that we'd hold up to the patients if they were intubated and had they couldn't talk because so they had the tube down in their in their lungs and we'd hold it up and it'd have a smiley face to a frowny face and all in between and that would tell us how much pain they were in so we would know how much narcotics to give them and we were pushed because people were saying the nurses and hospice and uh, you know the chronic pain people they were saying you're not giving us enough you're not using enough narcotics you're not using enough painkillers. Well, we thought that we were doing a pretty good job, but okay, so we gave a little bit more. Then by 2012, it started to turn around the other way. Now we're giving too much. And some of the addictive problems are our fault. I beg your pardon. And, and it's not just the person on the street. It's not just the layman. One of the nurse anesthetist. A nurse anesthetist is a nurse who has gone beyond the bachelor's program to get a master's in nursing with a subspecialty in anesthesiology. And anesthesiology is that branch of medicine that puts you to sleep when you're having surgery, uh, injects you for chronic pain, and uh, does things related to that. So she is somebody who is informed. I mean, she uses these medications. She gives drugs that are uh, addictive, and she puts people to sleep and wakes them up. And she uses propofol, which is what killed Michael Jackson. And uh, she does all these things, and she doesn't know the whole story. She says, well, Purdue, you know, they convinced you guys that Percocet wasn't addictive. They didn't convince us of anything. Oh, yes, they did. They took you on all those golfing outings and, and tried to tell you that it was a great thing and to use it and that it wasn't harmful and, and you, you won't get anybody addicted. I said to her, I said, have you ever been on one of those golfing trips for doctors? She said, no. I said, I have. Nobody ever tried to tell me that Percocet or any other narcotic was not addictive. Not a drug salesman, not a pharmaceutical company, not the government, nobody. We all know that. We've known it for centuries. We know opioids are addictive. Come on. All right. So you want to blame Purdue and Johnson and Johnson for your addiction. That's all right. I'm not going to argue with you about that. That that's certainly your prerogative. And uh, but just realize that what little money you get, your attorney's getting oodles more, thousands of times more than you as a class action lawsuit person are going to get. I know I've been through class action lawsuits over the uh, sexual abuse by the parish priest in, in the Diocese of Louisville, Kentucky. So I understand how these things work. I'm not ignorant. But if you feel that you're going to make a statement and you're going to get a little cash out of it, go for it. I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for the Purdue's. I'm sure that they've got enough money that even though their company is in bankruptcy, they'll, they'll make it. They're not going to lose their, their home or their uh, automobiles or their jet planes. I'm sure that they'll be able to keep those. They, they probably have a billion dollars stashed away somewhere. So that's not all that upsetting to me. But what is upsetting is that we try to blame legitimate organizations, companies, doctors, people, for a problem that is, is really not of our making. And that the overwhelming increase in narcotic deaths in the United States is, it's not from prescription drugs. It's from illegal drugs. It's from fentanyl and methadone, which are both synthetics, which can both be made and are uh, much cheaper to make than it is to derive morphine 
and codeine from opium plants from the uh, opium alkaloids out of these or from the alkaloids out of the opium that is extracted from the poppy plants the poppy seeds and so i would say to you that this is another really strong argument to bolster our borders and to increase the police force that monitors what comes into the United States from outside the country, be it legal or illegal. And I'm, I know how this stuff comes through because I've ordered some pharmaceuticals from China for my toenail gel, fun, antifungal gel that I'm am, uh, experimenting with now and, and will get on the market again soon. I decided to go through the FDA asked them if it was legitimate for me to sell it. And they said, no, they really needed some research. So we've formed a committee and we've got a research protocol and I've got an investigational review board and the protocol is written up. We're going to submit it to the FDA and start the, the program. I'll, I'll come back on with more about that. And there'll be some free toenail gel for people who want to participate. So I understand what it is to bring a chemical, a pharmaceutical into the United States from, from China. And uh, it stops at a warehouse in Nashville or Miami or New York, and it's supposed to be inspected by the customs agents. And so you wait for some custom agent to come along and say, yeah, that's legitimate. I don't know how they do that. Uh, I would guess that they use, since there's so much stuff coming in, that they use uh, drug sniffing and uh, bomb sniffing dogs. Uh, they may have some other higher tech things that they do. But basically, it comes as it came from China, unopened and intact. And, I, you know, I've asked uh, my Chinese suppliers, I said, what kind of problems will I have getting this into the country? They said, oh, there'll be no problem. We, you know, we'll give you a certificate of authenticity and uh, it's stamped and it's signed. And uh, if you want to take the medication, the myconazole or the diclofenic sodium or the urea and have it tested, feel free. And if there's any problems, just send it back. We're sending it back is a big deal because it costs money to ship that stuff from China. And now with the tariffs, it's, it's getting to where we'll probably have to turn to uh, other sources. But nevertheless, and, and I don't have a problem with the tariffs, you know, if, if we want to equalize things with China, we're going to have to have protective tariffs just as they do, or they're going to have to lower their tariffs and open their economy to our goods. And I think that's a legitimate thing. And even the Democrats agree with that. So I understand how these things come into the country. And I understand how you can get fentanyl into the country, or at least how you could easily 10, 15 years ago. It's getting tougher now because the government's getting a little smarter. And we're getting a little, a little more educated as a society. But again, I go back to saying this, that the majority, the overwhelming majority of these overdoses are related to synthetic illegal narcotics like fentanyl and methadone. Yes, there's been a rise in, in the heroin overdose, but that may be related to the fentanyl too because the drug dealers are cutting the heroin and the cocaine with the fentanyl. And I don't know that all of the pathologists in the country, all of the pathology uh, labs and 
morgues in the country actually do the subtesting of the narcotics. So you can do a test for narcotics and it will, it will test for most narcotics and it won't tell you whether or not it's morphine or, or heroin or whatever. It'll tell you, you know, it came up positive for opioids. So we may even have a larger percentage of these people dying from fentanyl overdose because the heroin and the cocaine have been cut with that. And the, the pathologist uh, who does the postmortem doesn't test all the subtypes for whatever reasons, for cost reasons, for expediency, for lack of ability. I don't know, whatever it is. So we, we really do have a crisis here when you're talking over 50,000 deaths a year from drug overdoses and the majority of those being tied to fentanyl, which is coming into the country illegally. So we need to step up not only our control of the border, but also our war on drugs. And people say it's a failure. No, it's not. It is not a failure. I can tell you that the, from, from my experience as a physician for decades and having worked in psychiatric hospitals and in psychiatric nursing homes, I can tell you that the war on drugs is important. It does help. And we've got to ramp it up. And we can't listen to these crazy Democrats who say that it's a failure, that it's not worth the money and the time. When you got a death rate as high as it is, 50,000 a year, from illicit drugs, you know, I think that's, that's a big number and we need to do something about it. 5,000, well, maybe it's not a big deal. It's not as, as big a deal as, as, say, the flu or some other public health crisis. But when you get to 50,000, I think you're talking enough to get the attention of the American public and of the government, and we need to ramp up the war on drugs. We also need to do a better job with our kids and letting them know the risk of using illicit drugs, street drugs, or even drugs that you steal out of mom and dad's cabinet, and the, the grave dangers that are associated uh, with injecting it and snorting it not only just taking it by mouth and certainly if you add alcohol to it and we don't know how many of these drug overdoses in teenagers involve taking pills and then drinking on top of it and then they stop breathing. So it's vitally important that we talk to our kids in health class. You know, I think we need to talk less about sex in, in the health class and more about public, real public health problems like drug abuse, getting your flu shot, uh, uh, communicable diseases, and there you can talk about sex. But, I mean, this, this big push by all the women years ago to educate all the kids about sex, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, I think it just kind of made sex a little easier for the kids and then, than when I was young. But I don't know. I may be wrong there. But I don't see the need to spend inordinate amounts of time in health class talking about sex and reproduction. Yes, it's important, but so are other major health problems, major public concerns. And we need to do our best to protect our kids. That's important. I mean, that's what we're here for. That's the whole shebang. So we have opioid deaths going from 
5,000 a year to 50,000 a year in the past 20 years. Big jump, big jump. It said that in 2017, there were 70,000 drug overdose, overdose deaths that occurred in the United States, 70,000. That's a lot of deaths. That's a lot of deaths. That's all, not all narcotics. I mean, there are certainly uh, uh, people who are still committing suicide using benzodiazepines like Valium and Ativan and Xanax. Uh, and there are certainly people who are taking large doses of antidepressants and overdosing on those. The old time tricyclic antidepressants like Elavil and, and uh, nortriptyline, these are old time drugs that really do have some good uses, but in large doses, they're fatal. Well, so is Tylenol in large doses. If you take enough Tylenol and you wait too long to go into the emergency room, your liver's going to necrose. And if you don't get a liver transplant, you're going to die. You're going to die. And I've seen that. Had a patient come in decades ago when I was a senior resident. A uh, woman came in. She was just as yellow as could be. And uh, I said, you're a drinker? She says, yeah, I drink moderately heavy. I said, have you been taking Tylenol? She said, yeah, I've had a bad headache. I've been taking tons of Tylenol the past couple of weeks. And uh, we did the blood work up on her, and I looked at that, and I said, oh, geez. And the intern said, what? I said, she'll be dead in 48 hours. And she's sitting there talking to us, just as normal as you and I are talking on the radio now. And they said, no. I said, yes. And sure enough, she died within 48 hours. And we couldn't get her out for a liver transplant. They wouldn't take her because she was a drinker. If you're going to get a liver transplant, a lot of transplant centers require that you be off alcohol for a year. And uh, certainly that wasn't the case here. And, and so you can kill yourself a lot of ways. You can kill yourself a whole lot of ways. Accidentally, with drug overdose, that's, that's really a pity. Now, we don't know what percentage of these 70,000, from the statistics that I'm looking at from the CDC, are actually intentional overdoses, but we do know that it's significant, and I'm going to guess 40, 50,000 a year. So there's different kinds of, of deaths from opioid overdose, natural, accidental, unintentional, suicides, homicides. Homicide, yeah, there's homicides. There are nurses and a rare doctor who have used narcotics to kill patients. So these things happen. We have to be diligent. And uh, I heard a story about one of the former nurse practitioners, nurse anesthetist who worked at our hospital. And she got stopped driving home with needle and propofol that she had stolen from the anesthesia cart and she was falling asleep at the wheel and the police stopped her. She's shooting up propofol. This is the stuff that Michael Jackson was having injected into him so he could sleep at night and killed him. And the doctor who did that, of course, lost his license and went to prison. And we have to investigate these things. We have to look at the scene and, and uh, get the autopsy results and toxicology reports and the patient's health history, because, you know, if you have a person who's had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and they're, they're disabled so badly that they can't walk and their joints have been replaced and they can't take the new biologics because they've had tuberculosis or some other disease that 
precludes them from having one of these monoclonal antibody treatments that I've talked about in the past. And so they're stuck with the old time rheumatoid arthritis treatments and they're on heavy narcotics and they intentionally take an overdose. Uh, you know, the health history then becomes important because that's not an accidental death. That is a suicide. And we have to look at the patients and see if they have any pills in their stomach, uh, if there is frothy uh, substance coming from their mouth, if there's needle present at the scene, if there's a prescribing history and pill counts, and uh, a whole number of things that have to be uh, looked at and considered before we start to do the statistical work. And that's all I'm going to say this morning about it. And Joe, what do you say we grab a break here? Sounds like a plan. Are you with me, buddy? Yeah, sounds like a plan. Joe? Yeah, you're good to go. And I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill. The pain gonna make everything all With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Another day of protest expected in Hong Kong after a night of violent clashes. These involved the police using tear gas and rubber bullets and protesters following with gasoline bombs setting fires. Transit authorities have closed the two intermediate stations on the airport express train to guard against a possible disruption of transportation. The protesters are making several demands, including fully democratic elections, in the semi-autonomous Chinese city. General Motors' transition from gas-powered vehicles to an all-electric future is becoming an issue in contract talks aimed at ending a six-day-old strike by union workers. This has paralyzed the company's factories. It's expected to drag on. And there's been a big boost in the number of people telling law enforcement about potential mass shootings, uh, people who might potentially carry them out in the wake of three in August. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384. 7-2-7-3-8-4-6-4-1-1. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. National competition for your business is eating away at your customer base. Like digital marketing minions swallowing your customers one by one. You need Salem Surround. When a customer does a search, they need to find your business, not the competition. 
Your contact information needs to be accurate and all over the web. You need the right tools to turn visitors into leads. Contact Salem Surround for a free evaluation of your digital presence. Learn more at surroundtampa.com. Surroundtampa.com. Connecting you with new customers. The following statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. Amberin trials tested mild to moderate symptoms. Testimonial is based on 90 days of use. Results may vary. IRI US Mulo, 52 weeks by UPC. Hi, I'm Mary Lou Retton, and I want to talk to you about something I haven't liked to talk about until now, my menopause. All my life, I've had energy, energy to win gold in 84. But when menopause hit me, with the hot flashes and the night sweats, I began to feel sluggish every day. That all changed when I discovered Amberin. Amberin safely relieves 12 menopause symptoms by helping to restore your hormonal balance. Amberin is 100% drug-free, estrogen-free, and clinically tested. Amberin is America's number one menopause relief supplement. Thanks to Amberin, my fear of hot flashes is gone. My sheets aren't soaked every night, and my energy is back. Give Amberin a try and see what it can do for you. It works. It really works. Hurry to your Walmart, Walgreens, Target, and other fine retailers nationwide and get Amberin today. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Partly sunny today, winds east northeast. 7 to 14 miles per hour, high 90. Mainly clear tonight, low 69. Heading into Monday, sunny with a high of 89. Mostly sunny on Tuesday, high 90. Plenty of sunshine on Wednesday, light winds, high 92. That is your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Madison Baggett for AM860, The Answer. And I'm back with Dr. Bill, a little bit of the Black Crows, and she talks to angels. Uh, it's an interesting song. Uh, as I said earlier, it's about a woman who lived in Atlanta and was into the goth movement with the dark hair, black hair and the dark eyes and the black clothes, and was a, a heroin addict. And I don't know if she died or not. I, I kind of get the feeling she did. But we talked about narcotics and the fentanyl problem in the country the first half of the show, I want to switch and talk about uh, this blackface controversy that's going on and the big to-do that's being made by folks around the country and now in Canada. And what happened is Elliot Trudeau, who is the prime minister of Canada, and his party is running for elections again. And the way the parliamentary system works is whichever party has a majority uh, of the votes in the parliament then their man becomes the prime minister. And so he's the front man for the party, and uh, he is on the chopping block. Apparently he uh, had some blackface uh, photographs taken when he was in college and a young man at, I guess they were costume parties. And there are people predominantly in the United States who feel that the blackface is an insult, that it's a racial slur to black Americans, and it brings up the whole uh, second citizen debate and role that we've seen and heard over the past several decades. And uh, so I, I asked people at the hospital, I asked some of the black doctors and nurses and kitchen workers what they thought and try to get their idea and their sentiment, as well as some of the 
white guys at the table, Jews, Hindus, Catholics. We even have an Episcopal at the table. Yes, we let the Episcopals in. And I'll start with, uh, with what Al, my friend, had to say about it. And Al's a few years older than me, and he grew up in New York City. So he's a big city boy. He's been around all kinds of people all, all of his life. And he said, you know, that was just part of entertainment back in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, that was just, uh, I mean, uh, Al Jolson did a whole routine in blackface singing uh, Mammy in a musical that was, I think, the first musical, the first speaking one of the first speaking movies back in the late 20s. Al Jolson was a singer-actor back then. And my friend Deb, who's a nurse in the ICU, she said, well, you know, Dr. Handelman, I, I don't see any big deal about it because even blacks did it. You know, we'd paint our face black and our lips white uh, for, for costume parties and for joking around. So there is certainly that element of it, that there's that side of it, that in prior times, this was considered a legitimate form of entertainment, of fun. And Elliot Trudeau did this, and I don't even know that he was pretending to be uh, uh, an African as much as he was pretending to be an Arabian because he was dressed up like an Arabian. And uh, I talked with one of the guys, who's one of the doctors who's from India, at the lunch table, and he said, we don't really understand what the controversy is. And Deb said, you know, you know, doctor, if you talk to an African, sub-Saharan African black who's immigrated to the United States or a Caribbean, they're going to have a whole different take on this than a black who is raised in the United States, a black American. And she said, I even lived in Canada. She says, I, I don't think this is as big a deal as it's being made out to be. But she said, I was raised in, a, in an accepting and loving household. And my mother would say, you know, you, you just have to accept people as they are. And if, if they don't want you around, don't go. So if you're not welcome in the white inner circle of your high school in Valdosta, Georgia, well, then just go find your own friends. Don't try to make make yourself a, a nuisance and somewhere that you don't need to be or want to be or, or welcome at, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to convince people to uh, realize that we're all the same and that you have to look beyond the color and the accents and look at the personality and what people have to offer, whether it's in friendship or in, in business or industry or science or whatever it is. And so her take was that you got to be tolerant. She said, I've got two daughters and they're both in show business, so I probably look at this differently than other blacks do. And I asked one of the women in the in the cafeteria what she thought, and she said, no comment. And I, I, I said, do you think it's offensive? And she said, no comment. Now, this is somebody who has not traveled as much as Deb and has not had the educational uh, opportunities that Deb had. And so I took that to mean that she found it offensive, and even more importantly, that in a politically charged arena and where jobs are often lost over political improprieties, uh, in, improper behavior or, or in, improper uh, uh, verbiage, and people do lose their jobs because there's, there, there is within 
HCA, a corporate document that tells you how you have to behave and what you cannot do and what's what's an offense that you'll be fired for. And so I understand that. And I don't know that Val was all that upset about it, but certainly she felt it was politically charged enough that she shouldn't comment on it, and, and especially in the workplace where we were at. So th- that, to me, said a lot about another aspect, another side of it. Now, I talked with Reg, one of the black doctors, anesthesiologist, nice guy. We're, we're friendly, and I think that we're, at least as far as the lunchroom goes, we're, we're pretty close. And I said, what do you think, Reg? And he said, you know, there's still a, a, a lot of racism and bigotry in the United States. And I said, well, that's true. It's gotten a lot better. He said, no doubt. He said, but, you know, even within my lifetime, and he's younger than me, I'd say he's probably 15 years younger than me. He said, when I was in medical school in the 80s in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, the pediatrician who was leading our discussion group when we were students or residents or whatever it was, said, let me give you a scenario. Let me ask you what, what you would do. A young white couple comes in and their kid's got a snotty nose and a fever and tugging on his ear. And, uh, you know, they're young people and they're a little unkept and, you know, they're obviously, they haven't made it yet and they're, they're doing their best. And what would you do? And they said, well, we'd you know, all the students said, well, we'd uh, diagnose them and look in their ears and throat and probably start them on an antibiotic and something for congestion and let them go. And he said, okay, now let me give you another scenario. A black father and a white mother come in with a, a interracial child, same age, male, same exact symptoms, runny nose, pulling at his ear, crying, fever. What would you do? And one of the kids stood up and said, I wouldn't treat him. One of the medical students stood up and said that. And all the other medical students were like, what are you talking about? Well, this is an interracial couple and this isn't right. This is in the 1980s. And Reg's point was, Bill, it's still here. It still exists. And I said, yeah, I agree with you, Reg. I think that there are some aspects of bigotry and racism that are still hanging on. And that things like this are absolutely uh, uh, indicative of it. But remember that 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 was 1985, and we're, what, 25, 30 years away from that now. And he said, well, I would hope that that person has changed. And I said, I think the society in general has changed. And we need to be sensitive to what we say and do so that we don't offend our fellow citizens, regardless of what color they are. But by the same token, we need to put it into perspective and say, how offensive is blackface? Uh, I mean, now we know that a lot of people are upset by it, so I certainly wouldn't think anybody would do it. Now, I would not have done it anyway. My parents would have frowned on that, and I never really thought that it was uh, uh, all that funny anyway. It didn't didn't amuse me. I, I didn't get the whole idea of it. But but. A, you know, okay, some people find it fun, and they find it funny, and, and that's okay, uh, as long as it's not derogatory, as, as long as it's not meant to be a racist statement. And Trudeau, the young guy who is the prime minister running for re-election, he did this in the uh, setting from some of the pictures I've seen of being uh, an Arabian. 
of being an Arabian Knight. And one picture has him standing with two Indians, not American Indians, but East uh, Asian Indians who were Sikhs. They're the uh, turban guys that everybody thought were the terrorists, and they're not. The Sikhs are an offshoot of uh, Hinduism, and and they're actually anti-Muslim. <laughs> so but he was standing there with two of his his buddies, and there are a lot of Sikhs in Canada. I know I've been up there. I've traveled throughout the country. There are a lot of Indians that have immigrated to Canada and a lot of Sikhs. So how offensive is this? Uh, what was his intent? Uh, would, would we, if he did that today, find it uh, offensive in our community, in our culture? Well, I think the United States and probably to a lesser extent Canada are different than Sub-Saharan Africa, or all of Africa, the Caribbean Basin, a lot of South America. And I think that we have to take into consideration that although there's nothing wrong with it, it still is offensive to some people in the United States. And uh, certainly the press is having a heyday over this. And I got to chuckle that a lot of the people that are caught doing this blackface are liberals, Democrats, and up in Canada, the, the Democrats are the liberal party. So it amuses me to no end in that respect that we have uh, uh, a group of people that are so vehemently and stridently talking about how racist everybody in the United States is and Trump and all that. But they're the ones who did this blackface stuff and thought it was cute. And maybe it was at that time. I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's certainly something that we should stop and, and recollect uh, and consider and uh, think about before we do that again. Now, in another 50 years, it's probably not going to make any difference. And that generation will look back and say, what were they all upset about? I mean, you know, we're just going to parties. And, and I even see in the young black kids today, they don't really understand a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the elderly black Americans feelings about racism and bigotry and the Jim Crow laws. I mean, I grew up in the South, as did Deb. And, you know, I, I remember Jim Crow. I remember restrooms being white and colored and it wasn't white or black or white or Negro. It was white and it was colored. So if you were off color, if you were a Hindu, an Indian from Asia, then you weren't allowed in the white bathroom. And I've had black as well as Hindu friends who have been wrongfully stopped by the police and the police were scared to death and pulled their gun on them because they weren't white. And one of the guys was a doctor. He was on his way to Largo Hospital. And he, he said, I'm a doctor. I'm on my way to the hospital. And the policeman pulled his gun, and he was shaking and upset. The policeman, my friend, wasn't upset, and he said, I just stayed calm and got out and did what he said. And he gave him a ticket for running a red light or whatever. So, And that's just been within the past 25, 30 years. So these things did happen. They were real, and there are memories. And, you know, I, I talked with one of the women in, in, in the uh, nursing department, one of the black nurses, and she said, you know, you remember seeing a black man who walks into a store in the Deep South when you're growing up, 
And all of a sudden there are police there harassing him. And he's just going in to buy something. So we got to look at both sides. We got to we got to give it uh, a really uh, a soul-searching, introspective look at, at not only how we feel, but also uh, an retrospect as to how other people feel and how our actions are affecting them. I mean, you know, it's it's just common courtesy. Uh, you can kid around, but uh, there are some people who are still very sensitive, and uh, I personally don't want to get them upset. Should Trudeau be... Um, should he lose the election over this? Should he be castigated and put into the class of uh, someone who is not fit to be the prime minister? Well, certainly the was it the governor or the lieutenant governor of Virginia did the blackface and and didn't have to step down. I think it was the governor, as I recall, Joe. Trudeau did lose a little ground in the first poll since the blackface scandal. Uh, but, I, you know, I don't think that it's going to make a whole lot of difference. Now, certainly it wouldn't hurt my feelings if he lost because I'm not for the Liberal Party any more than I'm for the Democrats. But he should lose on merit or went on merit and not on what he did when he was a youngster and going to a costume party, in my opinion. Other people may feel differently. I don't know how you feel about that, Joe. It, it certainly strikes me as being... Uh, not as big a deal as the liberal press is making of it. Well, I mean, I think that on, in general, we pe- people that just kind of care about other people, you don't want to do things like it, like you've said here to um, be unkind or be offensive. I mean, I think just generally speaking, this is a, a, a societal attitude and, and an appropriate one. Yeah. Um, there, <laughs> I think where stuff gets a little sideways is this. Um, uh, politically categorized um, assumption that certain people are insensitive on these matters when there may or may not be any actual evidence of it. Um, but then the same individuals, when they are shown to actually being, quote-unquote, insensitive by the definitions that they themselves have set in, in place, um, that all of a sudden that, well, it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't matter as much. It isn't. As, and I think the issue here is really a double standard, and it kind of speaks to, um, in, in my mind anyway, that they're not really interested in the thing that they're complaining about, that it actually is just a cudgel that's used to um, impact people politically, which is I, I agree. disingenuous. Yeah. And yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's phony baloney. And it's not at all in <clears throat> any way helpful to the people that they are supposedly speaking on behalf of. And they're you really know, kind of doing them a disservice, in my opinion. I mean, if we either we either respect each other and love each other and care about each other, or we don't, and this is all just about politics, which yeah. is, if that's the case, then that's unfortunate, but it certainly looks that way to me, especially if you're going to, uh, I mean, look, the, the Democrat Party itself, it was the party of slavery. It was the party, of, it created the Ku Klux Klan. It was the party of segregation, all of those things. Okay, so supposedly and presumably that all changed. And okay, fine, um, but I think that it, there, it's almost like there's this intrinsic um, notion on the part of of our, our leftist brothers and sisters out there that um, in order to uh, make and whether this is conscious or not, in order to kind of make good all of those those bad deeds done in the past, um, they have to completely overcompensate 
And that overcompensation is a pointing a finger at everybody that didn't do the things <laughs> that they are um, all all bent out of shape about. And so, I mean, that that since since you asked, I mean, that's kind of the way that I, <laughs> that, uh, I did ask, and you answered quite nicely. Thank you. And you know, I agree. I think there's a lot of guilt and. Uh, uh, on the on the part of the left and overcompensating for that and a lot of projection too you know they're projecting their their faults onto the rest of us and saying see you're racist well no I'm not a racist I don't hate anybody because of their race um, there's people I hate but not because of their race no I don't hate that many people anyway but you know I got to tell you Charles Payne the you know the Fox Business analyst big tall heavy set black guy. They asked him on one of the Fox News shows, and, and he said, you know, I'm not that upset about blackface. I don't see what the big deal is. He says, I'm more upset about the police, uh, the neighbors calling the police on my kids when they go out to play basketball at night because we're in a predominantly white neighborhood. He said, you know, come on, they're, they're, my, they're my kids. You know, <laughs> it's our neighborhood, too. And uh, I think that that's very fear-driven when you have that kind of reaction. And, you know, let's face it, there is a higher crime rate in the black community, but that's falling. And there's a higher unemployment and, and undereducation rate in the black community, but that's falling, too, in the United States. I mean, the, the black community has come so far, and it's going to be within – Within my lifetime, I would if I live to 100, that is, probably within my son's lifetime, I don't think that there's going to be any real noticeable disparity between black Americans and white Americans, if we even have that anymore. Uh, we might have uh, uh, a situation where there's so much racial intermarriage that you know, people are going to say, what are you talking about? You know, the kids aren't even going to know that there was this big uh, racial conflict in the United States, which goes back to slavery. And like Deb said, she says, what? You, I can't deny the history that your your family owned my family at some point. Well, my family didn't because they were all in Eastern Europe trying to get out. Um, but I understand what she's saying, that, that white people owned black people, and it's, it's part of history, just like the Confederate flag is part of history. And if you go and say we're going to tear down everything that is symbolic of our history and forget about it, then guess what? As we've heard before, when you forget your history, you're condemned to repeat it. You're condemned to repeat it. And that is uh, uh, certainly a greater burden for future generations than to accept what we were and who we are and to be where we are in history and to continue to move forward. I mean, the country has changed so much in my lifetime. I mean, they don't even have questions. The Pew Research people don't even ask questions to detect bias when they're doing uh, uh, polls on political campaigns, which they did back in the 70s because of the former mayor of L.A. who was black, who was running for governor, and people didn't want to say they wouldn't vote for him based on their racial biases. So they had to put in some little extra words and questions in there, and they don't do it anymore because it's gone. We elected a black president. And that's it, guys. We're still a good people. God love you all. I'm out of here. <laughs>